Hello, and welcome back to Free of Charge, Conversations in Canadian Nuclear Science, a podcast by Canada's premier nuclear science and technology organization, Canadian Nuclear Laboratories, or CNL for short. I'm your host, Larkin Mosgrop, a program manager for CNL's Advanced Reactors Directorate, and today we're going to be talking about one of the main contributors to how Canada can achieve net zero by 2050, nuclear reactors. With the help of two experts, we're going to talk about large reactors and small reactors and how together they can contribute to decarbonizing electricity and heat production as we head into the future. Sitting with me today are Laurie Walters and Megan Moore. Megan is the Acting Technical Manager of CNL's Energy Systems and Emerging Technologies. In this role, she helps establish and drive the strategic vision for the Advanced Reactors Directorate with a focus on clean energy and the next big thing in nuclear. She's an expert in nuclear feasibility studies and economics. Lori is the manager of CNL's Advanced Reactor Materials and Chemistry Branch, where she's responsible for a team of about 30 scientists and technologists working on materials and corrosion testing under both can-do and advanced reactor conditions. She has been with CNL for nearly 30 years, providing technical and programmatic leadership on both can-do technologies and Generation 4 systems. And she's going to share this expertise with us today. Hello, and welcome to the podcast, Lori and Megan. Thank you so much for having me, Larkin. Happy to be here. So we've brought both of you on to tell us a little bit about both small and large reactors, what the current technologies look like with CANDU reactors, for example, and what they're going to look like in the future with Generation 4 reactors. And we're also going to look at the economics and market side of these as well. But before we get into all of that, let's pull back a little bit to look at the bigger picture of nuclear as a big contributor getting Canada to net zero by 2050. Laurie, let's start with you. Sure, sure. I think that's a great place to start the conversation, Larkin. Um, so currently, uh, nuclear energy makes up about 15% of Canada's total energy, and especially a large presence in Ontario, uh, where it makes up over half, closer to 60% of the province's energy. Okay? Uh, in Canada, nuclear places second uh, behind hydro and ahead of uh, natural gas. So. Hydro is about 60%, natural gas maybe about 11%, nuclear about 15%. So, yeah, really good spot, good contribution to, you know, Canadian society. And they will continue in the future. But can-dos, particularly in Canada, uh, but other reactors as well, provide a baseline energy source that enables us to maintain a stable and reliable grid where we can bring uh, these renewables uh, into the grid, enables their use, okay? So wind and solar, okay, wind, of course, only you know, is available when it's windy, <laughs> obviously, uh, solar when it's sunny. So, but nuclear is running 24-7, so it can run constantly. Nuclear is going to be an important part of achieving a net zero economy. As Lori said, it's one part. We can't ignore the other um, clean energy technologies as well. Um, both large reactors will likely be connected to our large provincial grids providing that stability. Um, however, they're also able to operate flexibly um, to respond to some of the changes and other renewables. Smaller reactors may be on a grid um, and that could allow for energy to be closer to where it's needed um, and reduce the number of transmission lines that need to be built. But they may also be in more remote areas that don't have connection to those large provincial grids, whether they be small communities or industrial sites that need a source of clean power that can operate continuously so it doesn't impact 
um, their production on their industrial site. So can you give us a little background on how nuclear has proven itself within the Canadian landscape and, and what has that, that looked like over the years? Yeah, sure. Um, so right now in Canada, we have 19 uh, operating uh, reactors. Uh, most of them are in Ontario and there's one in New Brunswick. Um, those 19 reactors, they produce 13.5 uh, gigawatts electric uh, for and, and with a total of uh, 95.6 terawatt hours of electricity. So, so huge, huge amount of electricity. Uh, the first two power reactors, uh, they were commissioned in Canada. Uh, the first one was actually in Ralston, not too far from where we are here in, in Chalk River. Uh, that was in the early 60s, 1962, I believe, and uh, Douglas Point in 1968. So these were pretty small, okay. Um, they fed 22, about 22 megawatts uh, for, uh, uh, for MPD. Um, and about 206 megawatts at Douglas Point into the grid. To put it in perspective, uh, right now in Ontario in the summertime, uh, we, we're using approximately 22,000 megawatts. Okay. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the Pickerings, the, lar the, the first set of large commercial reactors were built in the 70s and the, the latest ones, uh, Darlingtons, were uh, entered service uh, in the early 90s. Uh, and those reactors, the Darlingtons, were designed at uh, uh, 3,500 megawatts electric. Uh, in 2015, Ontario decided to uh, proceed with refurbishment of the, of the um, Darlington and six of the Bruce uh, reactors. Uh, two of the Bruce reactors had previously been uh, refurbished and uh, Point Le Pro was refurbished number a few years back, can't quite remember. Early 2000s? Yeah, yeah. Um, so this is a very large, so this, this, this clean energy program project is, is one of the largest in North America. So this is a 15 year project for, uh, it will cost approximately $26 billion uh, to refurbish these, uh, these reactors. But to scale that, mm -hmm. that's $26 billion over 15 years for that refurbishment of that 13 gigawatts of electricity. Correct. Right, because electrification is one of those key strategies for that energy transition, and it involves replacing fossil fuels, but fossil fuels have a dual purpose, right? Both electricity and heat production. Mm -hmm. How does nuclear fit into that story? For electrification, of course, um, you know, we can plug in our electric vehicles, our EVs. The government is encouraging people to start buying EVs, okay? So, having nuclear power, replacing uh, fossil fuel that way. Similarly, heat pumps. So in your home, you can have a heat pump which replaces your natural gas furnace. So you require, if you have um, electricity um, produced from a clean energy source, such as nuclear, wind, hydro, solar, okay, you reduce the fossil fuel or CO2 emissions from, from that as you, as you heat your homes and you drive your cars. If we step back a minute and we just look at um, energy production in general. There's two classes. There are thermal generators, um, which is fossil fuels fit into. They um, burn a fuel to create heat or steam, and that is sometimes used directly, or it's used to spin a turbine and create electricity. Or there's direct electricity generated, which is something like a wind turbine, or um, a hydroelectric, where it's directly spinning that turbine, um, it's not creating heat as an intermediate product. Where nuclear fits is with that thermal generator. So um, what happens in a reactor is it's simply creating that heat. 
Um, and then there's the choice to use that heat directly or to use that heat to produce steam, to spin a turbine and create electricity. So when we're looking at electrification, there are a lot of processes that can um, transition and simply use electricity. And there's a big advantage there because there's a big network already built up and we all have electricity lines running through our homes. Um, but there are certain processes that are gonna be much more efficient if they can have access to heat directly. Um, the difference between um, continuing to use fossil fuels for those processes and considering nuclear for those processes is the emissions released to the atmosphere. Um, you can capture carbon to a certain amount from fossil fuels and that's great and gets us part of the way there, but nuclear produces no emissions that are released to the atmosphere. Um, so that's really where we need to go to achieve net zero. So what kind of numbers are we talking about when we talk about how nuclear power could reduce global emissions? How much are we talking here? So nuclear power it can reduce global emissions by about 1.5 gigatons, and it displaces about 180 billion uh, B, with a B, uh, cubic meters of gas, uh, gas demand annually. So really, with, uh, with all of this interest you know, in expanding nuclear across Canada um, to meet our you know, 2050 goals, uh, provinces such as Saskatchewan, Ontario, New Brunswick, Alberta, they've released a strategic plan for SMRs, to bring SMRs into, onto the uh, electric grid in their provinces. Um, also in Ontario, the current fleet of CANDUs are undergoing refurbishment. Okay, uh, and that extends their life basically for another lifetime. They've had one lifetime, let's say, a number of the components, it's going to extend for another lifetime. Um, so uh, the hope is that, or not just the hope, but I mean it's, it's really our intent, is that um, nuclear is going to replace and reduce our reliance on fossil fuels, uh, and this includes, like we said, oil, gas, coal, uh, for energy, and therefore basically reduce the amount of greenhouse gas emissions, as Megan was saying. Um, and that's really essential because, you know, these emissions, you know, as we know, they're the uh, largest contributor to climate change uh, and, and pollution as well. Um, so some research that's gone into the effects of extreme weather, hot and cold, has indicated that um, climate change, even now, extreme weather is, is actually, you know, killing uh, in hundreds of thousands to millions of people per year. You know, and as uh, the population continues to grow um, without mitigating the effects of climate change, this, you know, very difficult situation will continue, uh, seeing more people being affected by this. Those are really powerful stats. So thank you, Laurie, mm -hmm. for, for framing the importance of nuclear moving into the future. Um, and so when we talk about today's current fleet of reactors in Canada, we're talking about large reactors, can do specifically, but the goal is to expand nuclear. And we'll not only have different types of can do possibly, or light water reactor or water-based reactors, but we're also gonna have different types of reactors known as the Gen 4 reactors. So can you tell me what a Gen 4 reactor is? So, uh, so we'll start with generation one. Those were the first 
first generation of reactors. That would have been like the uh, NPD, nuclear power demonstration reactor, like I, I said earlier. Uh, so those reactors, those are retired now. Generation two reactors were like the some of the the uh, the first commercial reactors, the larger scale commercial reactors. So the Candu reactors, the um, PWR reactors, light water reactors. Uh, generation three reactors are an evolution of those generation two reactors. So we have, let's say, for example, the enhanced Candu six uh, designs. Uh, we have the uh, advanced boiling water reactors. Those are those are evolutions of the second generation reactors. So generation four reactors now it's taking uh, a different a different approach. Okay, they're looking to uh, to increase efficiency, increase safety, uh, and, and increase reduce the amount of nuclear waste. Okay, so we're looking to uh, use different cooling systems, such as uh, molten salt, uh, high temperature gas, sodium. Okay, and um, uh, so they're going to operate at much higher temperatures. Their environments may be corrosive, uh, so we have to look at effects like on materials. Um, and we're going to look at different fuel, different fuel cycles, different types of fuel. So it's all about increasing efficiency, reduce eventually reducing costs improving safety, uh, reducing uh, proliferation concerns. Thanks, Laurie. So, so Megan, can you start us off by talking a little bit about why we might go small? Sure. So first, I'll just explain for listeners the term SMR. So they're small modular reactors. Um, us as scientists are very literal in how we name things. <laughs> so they are small in their electric output, um, which means less than 300 megawatts. Um, that's about a third of a can-do um, and much smaller than some of the other large reactors around the world. They're modular and that means both that they can be constructed in different modules. So you may have a factory that produces a, a module for this, ships it to site, and on site you're simply kind of connecting the modules more like Lego than actually building from the ground up at a construction site. Um, this is really for twofold. One is doing things in the controlled environment of a factory can help you make sure they're done more precisely and more efficiently. Um, and by doing um, these in the same factory site, you can have workers that work there for many, many years producing many, many modules as opposed to a local crew that experiences really only the few reactors that have been built in that local area. And then the last is their reactor. So just like the large reactors, they're relying on nuclear fission for their energy source. Small reactors, there are some that are more similar to the Gen 3 designs. Many of them are using some of the Gen 4 technologies. Um, to be able to leverage some of those advantages while they're working on these new designs. So, for example, like the ones that Darlington has proposed to build, the small BWRs. Mm -hmm. So yeah. in Darlington, they're planning um, what is called a BWRX-10 reactors. So that's a boiling water reactor, which have been deployed um, around the world, and then an X or 10 defining it the 10th generation of that reactor. So they're using a mature technology 
of a boiling water reactor um, that has operated for many decades around the world. Um, but they're making some changes um, to improve its efficiency. Um, some of the changes are because when you go small, certain things are possible that just are very difficult to do in a large reactor um, because of basic you know, physics principles, flow, thermal hydraulics. So they're, they're relying very much on a well-known design and making a few small changes to make that even better. Why small? Why now? In Canada, we're a, a very big country, and so sometimes it seems like we could just take big power. But the way our electricity system is set up is each province has their own electricity grid. And so you have some provinces like Ontario that have quite a large population, um, a fairly large grid with some industrial drawing from it. They um, have been able to use large candy reactors um, very well. And as Lori mentioned, providing over 50% of the power effectively and reliably. There are other provinces, one example may be Saskatchewan, that has just about a million people. So much smaller than even the city of Toronto. Um, if a large um, nuclear reactor was placed on their grid, it could be unstable simply because you'd have so much power coming from one component. Um, which is true of any technology, it's really not unique to nuclear, it's how to make a grid stable. And so up until now, they haven't really had the option to consider nuclear as part of their energy system. Small is changing that. Small is now giving these smaller grids an option to consider nuclear as part of their grid because they can deploy it in a much lower megawatts that their grid can handle much better and they don't end up deploying more energy than their citizens need. Another point to add to, to, uh, to what Megan was saying is to highlight that uh, reactors can be adjusted to, to meet different levels of energy demand. Okay? And this can be paired with renewables, such as we were saying before, like wind, solar, uh, in a hybrid system uh, to, co you know, to overcome those intermittency issues, like when the wind doesn't blow or the sun doesn't shine. Uh, some countries, such as France, uh, they do this, they're doing this right now, uh, and Ontario, even to a small degree. Okay. Um, another thing to add about SMRs is that uh, they do this particularly well because their size allows for this increased flexibility. Um, we can see that uh, SMRs, like, you know, they're, they're deployed, we mentioned this earlier, they can be deployed directly where they're needed. So if they're needed for industry, for example, for steel making, they, be, they can be deployed very nearby uh, that industry, okay? If they're needed for a chemical plant, uh, if they're needed for a remote lo location, a remote community to provide the energy requirements, the electricity that's needed for that community, they can be placed there and they can be sized to their uh, electrical requirements that are needed. They don't have to be uh, larger, like a can-do reactor, 600 megawatts, is overkill, of course. Mm -hmm. yeah. So those SMRs really could be used to replace like diesel generators up north or Absolutely. even at mine sites, for example. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Yeah. So to pull back again and look at that bigger picture, why do we need new nuclear reactor technologies in the first place? So, you know, there's obviously been an evolution, Gen 1, Gen 2, Gen 3, and, and for the most part, those look pretty similar. They're just maybe getting bigger or changing the systems. But then it seems like there's a big jump from a Gen 3 reactor to a Gen 4 reactor. So why do we even need that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, correct, Larkin. Yeah, all of the Gen Gen 1, Gen 2, Gen 3, these are all water-based systems. We mentioned that earlier, but now we're going to using different coolants, and we really want to be looking at, you know, uh, increasing, uh, increasing the efficiency, improving the cost competitiveness, uh, providing and really being able to provide a future energy supply uh, that can uh, satisfy and adjust to the growing and challenging needs uh, as po- for populations as they grow and as we evolve and as we electrify the energy grid. So I'll also point out that we should be clear that the reactors that are operating today are excellent reactors. They have an excellent track record of providing um, consistent energy to um, Canadians without any severe issues. Um, They're online. They're there every day when you need them. And sometimes, I'm not sure what the the record is, but it's well over a year of consistent operation without ever having to stop even for maintenance. However, um, there are certain places where can-dos don't fit. Where they do fit, I see us building even more across Canada. But sometimes we need something. We need something that's either smaller, like we've talked about, to fit in um, some of these specialized grids and communities, or we need something that operates differently to better match the other clean energy systems that they have access to and provide an overall better solution. So Gen 4 is simply giving us a lot more options of how to use nuclear well. So let's get into these different Gen 4 reactors then. As with all nuclear reactors, they create steam that turns a turbine that in turn creates electricity, as you mentioned or maybe they just create steam for heat purposes. But each of these Gen 4 reactors does it in a different way. So let's talk about that flexibility. Could you break down the generation four reactors, both large and small? And and so then what would that look like from the market or even the economics, since we have an economics specialist at the table today, um, perspective? So if we start uh, talk about CANDU as the baseline, um, it has for decades, provided low-cost electricity to Canada. Um, Although heat is possible, and we have some historic uses of heat, today we're not um, typically using the heat from the Candy reactor to do um, for directly. We're using the heat from the Candy reactor to spin the turbine, like you said, to create electricity. Going forward, there's a need for a lot more electricity on the grid. And this is because of what we talked about earlier, that one of the key ways to create a net zero economy across Canada is electrification. Um, So as everyone starts to buy their electric vehicles, consider electric sources for heat in both office buildings and at home, you start to just need a lot more. And so CANDU will provide some of that. And some, in some cases, the Gen 4 reactors Um, will provide that in grids that maybe don't have really large 
power lines that can take a full gigawatt of power, you might build multiple SMRs um, so that the electricity doesn't have to travel very far from where it was produced to where it's going to be used. Um, you can put SMRs kind of scattered throughout the province on secure sites um, to provide that electricity without also having to do a major transmission infrastructure upgrade. So, you know, Gen 1, 2, 3, they all kind of seem to overlap a little bit in construction. And so Gen 4 reactors, you know, they're, they're a new set of reactors, but they've been researched for a while. I know that molten salt research was happening uh, at Canadian Nuclear Laboratories, then Atomic Energy of Canada, back in the 60s. Mm -hmm. So can you tell me a little bit about what's going on with Gen 4 and the, the applications of it? Yeah, certainly. Uh, so that's certainly true that there's been some research into some of the Gen 4 systems um, over the decades, uh, you know, at CNL as well as in, let's say, Oak Ridge. They had large molten salt uh, program at one time. They actually had a molten salt reactor running uh, for a few years, which was, you know, very exciting. So um, exciting. Yeah. Um, but Recently, uh, and I, when I say recently, I mean in the past, you know, 20, 23 years, since the year 2000, okay, um, it, the international community, community has recognized the need to, you know, to uh, improve, like, like we said, the, improve the efficiencies and uh, waste. From re from reactors, so we they wanted to uh, we wanted to start working collaboratively inter on an international level on these generation four reactors. So the generation four international forum was established in uh, around the year two thousand, and and uh, and that is its purpose is to look at the different systems of the generation four reactors and to work together uh, because really it's there's too much research to, for one country to do on its own okay uh, so and Canada participates in the generation Four international forum on a few of the systems um, so generation Four international forum or GIF uh, as, as an acronym um, uh, it's it selected six uh, generation Four systems okay uh, those are and each of these systems, um, and I'll explain this a little bit more, but they're, they're basically their name is, uh, represents their neutron spectrum and the coolant, which uh, is used in the reactor. Okay. So we have the gas-cooled fast reactor. So when you say gas, that could be a CO2 or helium. Okay. Uh, the lead-cooled fast reactor, molten salt reactor, uh, sodium-cooled fast reactor, um, those are all like as the name says, those are fast reactors. I'll describe. I'll explain that in a second. And then the supercritical water-cooled reactor that can be a thermal or epithermal reactor, as we call it. And, and similarly, the high-temperature uh, high-temperature uh, reactor, the VHTR. So, uh, so when we say thermal reactor or fast reactor, what we mean uh, when we say thermal, that's actually like a, uh, it's a lower energy neutrons, the neutrons that, that are available from the fission process. So to be able to, um, to basically slow down the neutrons from the uh, fission process, a moderator is used. Okay, uh, this, uh, and this helps to maintain the fission reaction. Okay, so uh, supercritical water, of course, uses water. Uh, and similarly, the generation two and three rea uh, reactors, they all use water as a moderator, light water, heavy water, okay? Uh, the VHTR, the, the high temperature gas cooled reactor, uh, that uses graphite as a moderator. 
uh, a fast reactor, uh, it, it directly uses uh, neutrons uh, from fission without moderation. And this increases the, uh, the energy yield compared to, uh, compared to the thermal reactors. Uh, fast reactors can be configured to fission all of the actinides, and this greatly reduces the, the actinides fraction in spent fuel. And I would fuel. say an actinide, and Lori will ahead. correct me no. if I'm wrong, because she certainly knows more about this, is um, the components in the fuel that you tend to be most worried about um, when you're storing it after use. So it's what tends to be hotter and potentially radioactive to the environment. So therefore, these types of reactors are using more of it up, making the fuel safer when it's uh, removed from the reactor. Less waste. It's minimizing the amount of waste. Awesome. So, Megan, can you tell us why we would move into Gen 4 reactors from the economics point of view? So I'll actually talk more about large and small because Gen 4 can be both. Um, Gen 3 fit into these areas as well. So large reactors, whether they be Gen 4 or Gen 3, have a significant advantage that we've levered, leveraged over the last many decades, which is economies of scale. It basically means when you do something on a really big scale, like producing a gigawatt or more of power, the cost per megawatt tends to be cheaper. Um, if, you, if you think about it, at some point you don't need the exact same number of people per megawatt. You can have the same mechanic being looking after five pumps or four, you're probably not going to hire another mechanic just for one more pump kind of idea. Um, the smaller reactors are looking at what we call economies of multiples. So they're smaller, which means they don't get the economies of scale of producing lots and lots, but they do get the um, experience of repeating the standardized design um, a lot of times. And I think we all know the more you practice doing something, the better you get at it. And that's the general idea with the small reactors is uh, we can have the standard design that we produce many, many times and get very, very good at producing it, which can lower the cost. Um, there are also specific um, technical pieces um, that you can incorporate in small reactors just because of their size that help them um, be a little bit more efficient and say how they're removing some of the heat from the reactor. Um, you just don't need quite the same level of complexity as you do when it's as a very large. Um, but for the most part, it's it's getting that experience, repeating them. To say one is cheaper than the other is virtually impossible because it's really about where you're deploying it. Um, in areas that you need a lot of power, economies of scale or a large reactor is likely going to be best. Right. Um, do one big construction project, do it well, and you've got a workhorse now on your grid that's just going to provide that large amount of electricity. But if you don't need that electricity or heat, if you're looking at heat, if you don't need that much, building really big 
just leaves you with kind of a wasted unit. Mm -hmm. And it really eats at that economies of scale. You now really built big, but you were getting your savings from producing a lot. And so this is where small often ends up actually being a better economic choice because you build what you need. Right. You'll use, you'll use what you produce instead of dumping it or not being able to use it. But I want to circle back to something you said before we talked about small and large. Um, so are Gen 4 technologies in line price-wise with the Gen 3 technologies? So again, that's a difficult comparison. As Lloyd pointed out, um, since the early 2000s, when um, countries have been working collaboratively on these, they made a very clear goal that the designs they work on and produce should provide economic advantage or at least bare minimum be comparable to current reactors. The big difference from where we are now is we have many, many years of experience with generation three. Um, not quite the same as the economies of multiple that you'll get for small reactors, but similar. We've done these before. We've learned from mistakes in the past and we can tend to um, both construct and operate them better. Gen 4 reactors um, have been operated at a research level, but they haven't been commercialized yet. So the initial ones are probably going to go through some of that same learnings we did for Gen 3 um, and maybe cost a little bit more with the goal of once we um, kind of figure all those things out, learn from our experience and what worked really well and what took a little bit um, longer by taking a different approach, then they're expected to be comparable or lower cost. But um, it's really a, with all energy, you're not looking at what the cost is today because you're building a reactor that may very well operate for 60, 80, 100 years. Right. So you're looking at the cost of today and all those years later. And so sometimes it makes sense to pay a little bit more today if it means you're going to save a lot of money over its operating life. Mm -hmm. Other times it makes sense to pick the more efficient option today because it's still expected to be the more efficient option throughout its whole life. Right. Yeah, it's one of those reasons that the lifetime cost of nuclear, if you look at a diagram from 2014 and compare it to one from 2023, the nuclear cost has actually now gone down um, because all of the reactors in the states have been getting life extensions and same with Ontario with our refurbishments. Now, because you're at the table, Laurie, what about materials? You mentioned that there's corrosive environments in some of these Gen 4 reactors. So are materials more costly? Are they specialized materials? And how does that fit into these economies of scale or even of multiples? So the, the SMRs that are being envisioned today, they're considering the, can, the candidate materials are existing materials that are already uh, qualified. Okay, so there's Great. about six materials that are currently qualified for these uh, applications that are being used. But uh, as we said, uh, the generation four uh, environments, they're more, some of them are more corrosive. 
let's say molten salts, for example, it's more corrosive. Even the high temperature gas cooled reactors, it's a helium environment, it still experiences some corrosion. Um, they're going to be operating at higher temperatures. And like we were talking about, we, these reactors will be online for, for decades. Okay. So research will have to go into uh, to determining some uh, advanced materials. There is research that's going into these now. Anything that's a little bit higher strength, <clears throat> more resistant to corrosion, and also some of the fast reactors will get a very high amount of <clears throat> what's called the radiation damage in a material. So it's just, this is coming from the high, the fast neutrons that we talked about. If there are, but there's trade-offs sometimes because you, when you're operating at the high temperatures, some of the damage, the radiation damage in a material, it's it's actually it's annealed. Um, it it self healing uh, self heals itself. Yeah, exactly. So new materials will have to be considered to be able to you know perform during these you know in these very sort of challenging environments, and it is one of the challenges of the advanced uh, of the generation four. I think this is one of the examples of um, you're able to use some of the existing qualified materials um, to make maybe an easier, lower cost for that first deployment, but they'll likely need the refurbishment, like what we're doing in Canada s or in can do sooner, um, okay. because the materials may not last as long. What Lori's talking about is um, kind of that long vision thinking about if we looked at some new materials, could we um, extend the life before refurbishment is needed? Mm. And from an economics point, you know, the more energy you get out before you're having to do a major um, replacement of key components in a refurbishment, generally the better. Right. Um, so. It's, it's not to say that using the existing materials is just not going to work. It's just going to have that earlier refurbishment. And so, you know, us as scientists here at Canadian Nuclear Labs is always thinking about what could we do a little bit better? What could we do to make these operate even longer safely? Um, and so that's where the new materials comes in, is making them even better. And so just to add to um, um, looking at these, you know, sort of new materials, uh, this is where a lot of the collaborative work that we do internationally comes from the Generation 4 International Forum. So uh, this is a great opportunity, uh, particularly from the universities, uh, who are developing highly qualified people, okay? They get to, uh, they get to kind of explore and you know, consider what makes a material more resistant to high temperature, high neutrons, you know, a lot of high energy neutrons, uh, corrosive environments. You know, so this is a great opportunity for students and highly qualified people to develop. So we work, this is the way we work collaborati collaboratively. This is one of the topics that we work in, in GIF together uh, internationally and with the universities. So great opportunity to grow people. Yeah, and the results that come out of that work are going to be beneficial to the nuclear industry, but are also going to be beneficial to a lot of other industries as well. Right. Whether it be you know oil and gas and the materials they need to um, make sure their pipelines last longer, um, perform better, Aircraft. or whether aircrafts and planes, 
or space. Um, yeah, some of the cool yeah. stuff I get to do in when I have my yeah. other non um, terrestrial energy is think about what we would do in space. And it's also different in some ways, but very similar to a reactor in other ways of a fairly harsh environment on materials. So um, there's a lot of this base research that's going to benefit not just reactors, but a lot of other areas as well. Um, yeah, spurring is, innovation yeah. across all the industries. Yeah. So, uh, so some folks who, who don't really think nuclear is the way forward in building out Canada's clean energy mix, they talk about really how expensive it is and then how it just, it just takes too much time. So as experts in this area, what is your response to these types of claims? Okay, so large-scale nuclear reactors are a proven low-carbon technology. Uh, they can be deployed, and I believe, you know, they can be deployed at the scale and timings uh, to meet these increasing demands for clean, clean and reliable electricity and, you know, to fill our climate change uh, commitments. Um, the large reactors, the CANDU uh, PWR reactors, the average time to build one of those reactors is seven to ten years. Um, you know, building more of them, we get better at it. Uh, right now, the refurbishment that's going on in Ontario, uh, we have heard that some of the uh, schedules are ahead of the plan. This is, you know, they've been doing this for a while. They have a well-established supply chain mm -hmm. and the staff are, and, you know, the professionals, all of the people are committed to that. You know, they've, they've been doing it a couple times to get it, to get better at it. Okay. Um, and as we need to bring on more reactors, uh, you know, these will, supply chains will be in place and we will continue to reduce those amounts of times to build, I feel. Um, SMRs have a shorter construction uh, period in the range of maybe three to five years. And, they, and as we talked about before, they can be built anywhere. They don't ha need to be near a water source because we're looking at the different environments. Like we said, high temperature gas or molten salts, okay? They don't need to be like near a, a lake, okay? Well, and the UAE just built out four big reactors mm -hmm. in, in how long? It wasn't very long at all. And, and so I think, as you just said, as you start to get back into building, it's easier to build out. You know, the Darlington units did not take... 80 years to build. Correct. Right. Yeah. So yeah. you just have to get back into it. But how does that fit in with our time scale? You know, we talk about net zero by 2050, that we're going to need power for then. How does that really fit in? Can we actually meet the target of needing two to three times the amount of electricity by 2050? Megan? Yeah. So, so that target of two to three times the electricity, and then you add direct heat on top of it, um, I think if we're all honest with each other, no one technology can do that by itself. Um, so as much as us around the table here today are proponents of nuclear, we also understand that we need hydro, we need wind, we need solar, we need biomass, we need geothermal. Because we're going to need everything on the grid to be able to provide something in that time, that quickly, and in a cost-effective way. There are going to be some applications where nuclear is a clear winner, and it's gonna provide the best, both in reliability and in economics to the community. There are going to be other applications where one of the other clean technologies will, will likely be better suited. And so it's not really about one or the other, can anybody do it alone, which one's best? It's about finding the right spot 
for each of the clean technologies and then more so understanding how they can work together right so there are advantages of wind and solar but as Laurie also pointed out they're intermittent which can be a challenge right so you you need to couple these things together and think of the overall system um, to be able to get the right solution we're coming towards the end of this conversation and i'm so grateful you both took some time to spend but i'm going to ask one more what is one thing that you wish more people knew about nuclear i think a lot of people get scared off of the complexity mm. and i myself am not somebody that went to school specifically for nuclear. I don't have a degree in nuclear engineering. So I started where everybody else was. Um, but understanding that um, it actually isn't in some ways quite that complex. It really is just a way to provide a lot of heat that we can then choose what to do with. Mm. Whether spin a turbine like all the other heat sources do or use it directly. Um, and, and encourage people that are interested to go and learn. It's not so complex that you can't figure it out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. What about you, Laurie? Yeah, I'll build off what Megan said um, in that, you know, the complexity of it. Like, because we have, we have experts who work in all of the different fields. Uh, so, and they are experts in their field and they may know a little bit about, you know, the other fields, but you have an expert, uh, let's say in fuel, and that person spends uh, their education, a large part of their career. So you're, not, you're talking maybe 30, 40 plus years on, on one topic where they become an expert. Uh, I, the people I've worked with over the decades, they're, they're passionate mm -hmm. and they're professional and um, they, they do not take this lightly. So this is um, so this is why you know when Megan says it it's maybe not as complex, but it but that's the thing because we we have our area where we focus and we we dig we dig in to you know to the depths to the core of it to understand <laughs> it so to speak yeah 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 and, you know I think that's a really good point is that you know I also came in without a nuclear background um, and there's so much to learn and there's so many amazing people to learn from in the industry as a whole and there's always something new but I think also because you know we talk about this nuclear renaissance and gen 4 and small reactors are part of that and it's because everyone there's this energy around nuclear that hasn't happened before um, in the, at least in the last few decades and so I think it's a really exciting time to get in and and to get involved but then as you said Megan that you know it's an energy system so really just learning and understanding a little bit more about energy in general is a really good way to, to really start to make choices that you know can help the future of our world and like climate change. Thank you so much, Laurie and Megan, both for joining me today. It was an amazing conversation and I look forward to learning a little bit more about Gen 4 and, and talking to you again maybe when we start to deploy the first uh, small modular reactors in Canada. Thank you for listening to another episode of Free of Charge, Conversations in Canadian Nuclear Science. This podcast is produced by Canadian Nuclear Laboratories, Canada's premier nuclear science and technology organization. To learn more about us, visit us on social media or on our website at www.cnl.ca. Until next time. <laughs>